Well, good morning. It's March. I'm not sure how that happened. March 5th, week 9, BP Academy, Conversational Apologetics. Um, well, I don't know, man. Maybe I, uh, maybe my teaching's stinking up the place. You know, was it last week? There weren't, weren't many people here, and I thought it was the weather, but, but now there just aren't many people here. But those that matter are here, so I appreciate, uh, appreciate that, guys. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, there was some weather. Okay. Um, all right, so 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And then our theme quote, Christianity is a reasonable and rational worldview that resonates with our deepest intuitions about reality when understood in its proper context. That's Gregory Kukul, the author of our, of our book, Tactics, um, and his ministry is Stand to Reason, um, str.org. Uh, it's a good website. All right. Just the facts, ma'am. That's what we went through um, last week. It's, um, it's a... Uh, cute little quote from uh, the Dragnet series um, back in the 50s, I believe. And uh, my research said that Just the Facts, Ma'am, wasn't actually a quote from the show, but that... Uh, I disagree with that. All right, if you can find a clip where he says it, it'd be great. But I, uh, I decided I was throwing too many minutes into the infinite abyss of the internet and uh, I stopped. So I, I, I gave up because I did find a website that said, actually, that's just kind of the way pop culture has committed it to memory, but it was, it was not the actual quote. Um, so I don't, I don't know, man. I wasn't around then. I don't, <laughs> just the internet said it. That's what the internet said. Uh, We're really relying on it. <laughs> uh, um, but, uh, uh, I was, I don't know if I was around for Columbo or if I was just young enough to really catch uh, reruns, but I, 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 I have watched a lot of Columbo in my day. And, uh, you know, one of his favorite, or one of my favorites of his is, oh, just one more thing. You know, just, just one more thing. Yeah, one more. And he always does, you know, I ah, just can't figure it out. Anyways. Uh, all right, so just the facts. It's an easy-to-use tactic that doesn't really require any uh, cleverness or, or deft maneuvering. It just, it just requires you to, um, to have a couple of basic ingredients. Um, what were they? Identify and investigate. Yep. Yeah, we want to we be aware uh, that a lot of times the challenges that get thrown at Christianity are just simply based on bad information. And um, we, we gave some examples of that last week. But... Um, you know that's you know that's really um, that's really I think why I've never I've never thought this before. But as I'm doing it on my feet out loud, I, I think that might be why I enjoy that quote so much. Christianity is a reasonable and rational worldview that resonates with our deepest intuitions about reality when understood in its proper context. Because most people don't understand Christianity in its proper context. They've they've heard some kooky things. They um, you know, sometimes directly from the mouth of a Christian, and the Christian might have been telling them right, but with no contextual explanation or anything, that just seems weird, and then they commit it to memory wrong, and then that now becomes a, a part of their knowledge base, and anyway, so on and so forth. But we see it, we see it all over the place. So just being aware that, that a lot of times, and that's not to say that a challenge to Christianity, hey buddy, isn't ever uh, legitimate. Um, it just means that it's not an, an uncommon thing uh, to see a, a false 
claim about Christianity uh, lobbed at it, so to speak. So normally you can overcome you know, those objections by just a simple appeal to the actual facts or the actual contextual understanding of whatever piece of information they think it is that they know about, about Christianity. So the second part though, the second ingredient is, is the actual information. So you, you do kind of need to know the facts, but we were saying last week don't get too bent out of shape. You don't have to always know the facts for a couple of reasons. One, uh, we all have smartphones in our pocket. And you can pull up some data pretty quick on the fly. Um, you know, you always want to be careful of what your sources are and so on and so forth. But, but getting a, a, a general feel for something really only takes a matter of seconds or, or minutes with the internet. But, but the other thing is, is that sometimes you can just spot bad information. You know, just by the way somebody says something. Um, you know, the, he gave a couple of examples in the book. One was, uh, you know, the amount of, uh, you know, women that were killed during witch hunts. Uh, I think he was in, in the Roman, you know, context. Um, and then he gave another one about uh, a dentist and how many cavities a dentist said that he filled in his 20-year career. And he's like, you know, if you just stop and do the math real quick, you'll find out that that's really not all that plausible, right? So um, anyways, without, without retilling that ground too much, uh, if you didn't read the uh, just the facts ma'am section or chapter, that's, that's a good one. So yeah, and then um, uh, Julie hit on it, you know, because I was, I was kind of given the ingredients, but, but Julie went straight for it. The, the two-step the two process to kind of execute the just the facts ma'am tactic is, is one, as she said, identify the claim and then actually investigate those, those facts. So um, be aware and ideally be armed with the information. The, the, more, um, the more you do this, uh, the, the, I don't know what the right way to say it is, the easier it is to kind of organize your information because you just hear so much of the same stuff over and over and over. And there's, you know, maybe a half a dozen or so talking points, or, or I should say facts or pieces of information that can, that can right a whole lot of wrongs. Um, this is, this might be a, a weird, uh, I don't know, maybe Sarah can relate to this one. When, um, uh, when, because she, you know, she has certain licenses and things for, for her profession. When I was trying to get licensed uh, as, a, as an advisor, uh, you got to pass this thing called a Series 7. It's like the financial equivalent to the bar exam. Except the bar exam, they send you to school for years and years and years and then they give you a test. On this thing, they just send you this phone book and they're like, good luck, call us when you're ready. Um, so I, I learned that uh, the easiest way for me to get my head around that information was to start with the practice tests. Because that helped me zero in on what they wanted me to know. And as I did that, what I learned was section by section, whether it was stocks or bonds or mutual funds or whatever it might be, there are really only about a half a dozen things they're asking you about. They might give you 50 questions, but there's only five concepts or so that they're tapping into. And what you needed to do was learn those concepts and then be able to discern the question that was coming at you, oh, that's about this. And then it was almost always the same basic answer, but they just, they constantly wrap new skins on those questions, right? So once you could find the principles in a given section and, and commit those to memory um, and learn them, then 
then you, it's like, throw the questions at me, it's fine. Because there's just a handful of things here that, that are actually going to answer that. And the same is true with apologetics. That's all that happens is it's the same basic questions just as time goes on, generations change, uh, the way we, we share data changes, etc. They just keep putting new skins on these old questions. And so knowing the facts isn't really as intimidating as it might seem. Um, and, and as you continue to, to kind of develop your apologetic toolbox, um, think of it that way. Just, just you know, boil certain areas down to certain principles and um, you'll, you'll be surprised at, at how often you feel prepared to engage in that conversation or tackle that, that given question, even if it's coming at you in a version that you've never seen before. Um, all right, so identify the claim and investigate the facts. All right, I digress. So today, the inside-out tactic. I have to admit, this is my personal favorite. I think, um, I think of all of them, even Columbo. I, I think you get the most mileage out of Columbo, for sure. Because the Columbo tactic, it can help you out of anything. Like, it just doesn't matter. You can always ask, what do you mean by that? <laughs> and you can keep that conversation going. So Colombo's great, but in terms of why do we do this? What is this about? What's really going on? You know, what's, what's really the, 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 the struggle or the, I don't know, I don't, I don't even know how to articulate it. The reality of what's actually playing itself out is, is in my opinion, it, it, in those kinds of conversations, it's, it's this tactic. It's reconciling what everybody knows on the inside to be true, whether they're a believer or not, with the way they say on the outside they look at the world. And, and I, I, it, it's so true, I don't know if it's because it's so, you know, what, what comes first, you know, the chicken or the egg? Is it, is it so applicable because it's so true or is it, yeah, probably, that's probably the right way to say it. It's true for all of us, therefore we know it's applicable in almost every conversation. So, now, be prayerful about it. You, you know, you may not, um, you, you, you may want to engage in kind of a, um, a sharing of information and providing of clarity about certain intellectual hang-ups that they might might have but but occasionally you meet that person that no matter what you say they're just not going with it you know I um, I, I had a Mormon friend um, that I was witnessing to for I've probably mentioned this in here for well for years um, and it kind of came to an end because we were we were working through Hebrews and um, you know, verse by verse, and um, we had been doing that for a while, and at some point, and I think this was because the weight of, of the, the scripture, you know, was, was starting to be more than he could carry, um, in terms of its, um, its differing opinion about his worldview within Mormonism, right? Um, and at, at one point, he finally just kind of stops the conversation. Uh, he doesn't say that he wants to quit, he just, it was kind of like an FYI for me, and, and he said, uh, Dustin, it, it, I, you know, this is really interesting, but I, I got to say, um, no matter what, I, I can't deny my allegiance um, to uh, Joseph Smith, you know, as the prophet. It doesn't matter if the whole world turns their back on Joseph Smith. I'll never do it. At which point, okay, man, 
Like, I don't know what we're, what we're talking about. I, you know, if you're just going through the motions here to appease me, uh, you got the scriptures. Read them on your own. You know, you're not a dumb fella. You don't, you don't need me to walk you through them. Um, I, I, I think you get what the scripture is getting at, and you don't like it. And you're going to go back into your, your cave, and you're going to close the door, and you're going to sit there in a lie. Okay, uh, only the Holy Spirit can change that, so I'll be praying for you. But I'm going to take this time back and give it to my kids. Um, so anyways, um, the inside-out tactic is, is not so much a spe specific maneuver as it is a frame of mind and understanding of what it means to be human. Okay, so somebody read for us Genesis 1.27. And then somebody else, uh, go ahead and cue up uh, Psalm 8.5. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. Created him. Amen. And then uh, somebody got Psalm 8.5. Amen. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> All right, so what do these verses mean? That God created man in his own image, that we have been crowned with glory and honor. What is that about? Amen. How come? Because we have a built-in God seed. Mm -hmm. Got a built-in God seed. Um, and if you were going to elaborate on that a, a, a little bit more, if somebody was going to jump in and, and help her, um, how, would, how would we go on about that? Built-in God seed. Uh, I, I remember that uh, gal I was talking to here a couple of few weeks ago. Um, as I was prepping this lesson, I was thinking about her and how um, I wish I had a recently digested this this chapter. Tactics is the kind of book like once every couple of few years or so, doesn't necessarily have to be every year, but every two or three, mm, trace back through it and just remind yourself of what you know because you'll you'll find there's times to where you had an opportunity to uh, go a certain direction and you, you didn't, you forgot. And as I think I was sharing with you guys, but she was saying that um, uh, basically all of us had a piece of God in us, right? That, that she called it sparks of God. Um, and there was a lot of truth in that, but not in what she was saying, in the way she was describing it as us being these little gods. Not at all. Um, and and I, had a, I had a bigger aim with her that I was trying to get to, but, but in any event, I, I think I could have got some good mileage had I, had I just utilized this inside-out tactic in, in that moment. But, but she referred to it as a, as a, as a spark of God. But, but what do we mean, Julie, when we say there's a, there's a seed of God when you, when you worded it like that? What's that mean, if you're going to dig a little deeper? That there is a... Yeah, we have a moral and a rational awareness that animals don't have, that, that non-living uh, matter um, or, or conscious, non-conscious matter doesn't, 
doesn't have. Uh, we are made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. It refers to that immaterial part of humanity. So being created in the image of, of God is mankind's unique capacity for moral and rational awareness. God made humans to be inherently different from animals. He built us into, uh, he, he built into us, when, when Julie's talking about that, that seed, what she's saying is he built into us some of his own qualities, right? We, we share with him the experience of, of personality and, and truth and, and beauty and, and will and, and reason and, and meaning. Um, you know, I uh, don't take this as... Um, uh, you know, I'm no theologian, and uh, but so, but I'm willing to debate with theologians. <laughs> um, and there would be some theologians that would disagree with me. But but I where where I rest. So, so my opinion here. But where I rest is uh, the soul and the spirit actually are two different things, right? We are spiritual beings. Um, our, our ontological essence is spirit, but our soul is is the personality of, of that, that spirit. It's our mind, our will, and our emotions. It's what makes that essence unique. That's, that's our soul. And it's, and it's, you know, God is spirit, but, but that imprint, um, those, those capacities to have a mind, a will, and emotions, that's what it means to be made in the image of God. It, it doesn't mean that even though God took on the form of a man, true, but but when we talk about us being made in the image of God, it, it doesn't mean that, well, ten fingers and ten toes and two ears and one nose and that kind of rhymes. We could make, a, we could make something for the kids out of that. Um, it, that isn't what it means. It, it means that we have capacities to relate to and know God in a way that no other creature does. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. That's the Imago Dei. So what, what does it mean to be human? And and when you guys answer this, um, I, I want somebody to answer, you know, at least some of you, one way, and then some of you answer another way. What does it mean to be human from an atheistic worldview? And then flip it over, and what does it mean to be human from a Christian worldview? Somebody open that up and kick it around. Right. Me neither. I, I, in fact, I thought you did pretty good. I was like, oh, you sound smart. I don't, know what, I don't know what the word is. Yeah, but you got the point across. A, a human is, what it means to be human is just being part of this genetic makeup. Science has classed, classed us in a group, right? And then 5,000 million Hey, Debbie. Possible thumbs. Mammal thumb, right? You get into all this stuff. And it'll change. And, I mean, 20 million years ago, it was the homo sapiens. Man, I don't know. You're doing so good. Just keep going with with confidence. confidence. Yes, man, you got it. Homo sapiens were different. They were different genetically than they are. And that was what it meant to be then, and now it this. And in 20 million years, we'll have, have an extra set of arms because that'll be what we evolved to be the most useful. Yeah, last week we were talking about if you're going to say it, sell it. You just you did a good job. <laughs> All right. So a couple, a couple of them from the book here was uh, one was a quote from Bill Nye. We're just a speck on a speck orbiting a speck among other specks. I thought that was pretty wow. scientific. 
Yeah, that was, I mean, I was, and that's what I asked too. I was like, huh, Bill, is that the, Mr. William Nye, is that the technical term? You know, but when you think about it, right, a world without God, at least he's being honest. Like, yes, stardust. Like, in a world without God, we are literally just like stuck on this rock that's spinning out of control, orbiting some sun that's going to burn up at some point. We're all going to freeze to death. Like, why bother with anything, really? Um, but a speck on a speck, orbiting a speck among other specks. All right, and then Carl Sagan. We emerge from microbes and muck. Another one of those technical terms, right? Yeah. We find ourselves in bottomless freefall. He's getting closer to something there. Lost in great darkness, and there's no one to send out a search party. Mm. Okay. All right, but what does it mean to be human from a Christian worldview? Somebody tackle that one. And for those that, that snuck in, uh, hey Debbie, hey Allie, um, for the recording, they were they were singing, they were singing. Um, there's a there's a sign-in sheet somewhere if y'all make sure you catch that. All right, so what does it mean to be human from a Christian worldview? We already touched on. I know, but keep going. Deeper pay zones, deeper pay zones. Let's keep drilling. We're built for relationship with God. For his glory. Yeah. And with each other. And with each other. That's an important part. Yeah, um, you know, you called it a seed, right? But at, at the core of our being, there's this mark. There's this imprint. And it's an imprint of God himself. And it's not, you know, uh, Julie was, was hitting it just right. It's, it's, not, it's not a mark or an imprint that's made on us, like something got bolted on, right? It, it's, it's in us. It's a natural feature that's that's it's part of that essence. Um, and if we feed it, it'll grow. Mm -hmm, amen. If we feed it, it'll grow. Um, this, this mark is part of, of what makes us what we are. It's, it's what makes us separate and distinct. We, we wouldn't be humans without it. Uh, we, we'd just be creatures, which to James's point is where science tries to classify us anyways. And, um, you, know, that's, you know, that's where it can get really... Um, uh, interesting. You know, Sagan says we're cousins of apes. Well, all right, that's Mother Nature's assessment. Uh, but but our father says different, and and it's because of that mark that we're not kin to apes. We're we're kin to God, who made us for Himself to to know Him and relate to Him, uh, to to be in communion with Him, to have relationship with Him. You know, uh, those bumper stickers that say God's too big for one religion. Well, again, uh, you know, Christianity's not a religion. It's reality. It's the way things really are. Uh, religion's just an organized set of beliefs. Uh, um, but or, or, or God's too big to fit in a box or something like that. You know, I've, I've heard people use that when they're pushing back on, on systematic theology. And the spirit of what they're saying is true. There is so much more about God that we simply can't comprehend. But, but we don't have to know everything about him and his existence to, to know him and to relate to him. Um, and, and to be able to, to, to call on him and we just we just need that we just need that imago day we just it's that image of God that's what gives us the capacity so it's for that reason that we're, we're kin to God who to Ali's point made us for himself made us for his glory so it it's a lot of fun I, I wasted too much time uh, doing this because I, one of the things I have here is encourage class to Google what does it mean to be human um, and 
it's really fascinating some of the things that you'll find and some of the, uh, of the answers and the, the, the philosophies and pontifications that are out there and, and like people believe it. Um, here, let's, uh, I found one of, um, of Bill Gates uh, and, um, you know, it's nothing profound or amazing, but it was short and it was a, it was a recognizable name. So I was like, well, we'll use that one. Um, Right. Yes, that's yeah. That's a good point, David. Said if you don't, even, if you can't even, you know, acknowledge what a woman is, how are you going to defend what a human is? Go ahead, think out loud. But I, this is what this is what all of this is about. Is that when people say this stuff, if you're listening carefully and discerning what what they're actually saying and what they're trying to tie it to, it, it's a mess. But but keep going. Just just think out loud. Keep processing it. You're doing great. Like, we're human. Or what it means to be human is because we're so technologically. Yeah, he said because we could communicate, we're human, and it's like uh, you, pretty sure other animals communicate. Yeah, other animals. But he said we got really good at it, though. Right. But okay. I think that, that's got to be a result of something different. It's <clears throat> can't just say, look at all everything that we've done, therefore we're different. Or you can say that, but that doesn't get to the root of why we're different. Mm -hmm. We're different. Well, because we're intelligent. Well, we're just animals and <clears throat> There's just an assumption there that we're unique. <clears throat> and they acknowledge that. They allow for that in their worldview. But they will not explain, or they cannot explain, why. Why are we unique? You know, so uh, something that came to mind as you were talking, I, uh, I'll often get frustrated with this in terms of, of evolution. Um, okay, fine. I, you know, like, I, I've stopped debating it with people. Because you're skipping over the first part. So let's start with where life comes from, and then you can tell me how it evolves. But they don't want to have that conversation. They just take life and then try to start explaining it. Get yeah, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't work. So um, I, found, I found a quote that I liked. It was from uh, the, the British Broadcasting Channel, BBC, but it was BBC Earth. And they've got this big evolution, uh, artificial intelligence kind of thing. And it, and it looked, I wasn't aware of it. It looked fairly interesting. I want to go back and watch some of it. But... Here was a quote that I grabbed from the, from the website that was promoting this. Our story is remarkable. They're talking about mankind, humans. Our story is remarkable. The greatest story ever told. I'm like, really? Give us our language back. Like, you can't, you can't do that. 
Why? Yeah. Our story is remarkable, the greatest story ever told. And while it is the story of astonishing development for our species, it is also the tale of billions of individual lives echoing down the millennia, all of them full of hope and promise. Hmm. Fear and disappointment as we discover and then, they, and then they, they, they expose themselves. As we discover more about reality, we continue our ascent into insignificance, becoming a vanishing footnote in space and time, a speck of dust in the vastness of the universe. But to be human is to be at the center of our own universe, to experience life in all its colors and all its potential. This is what we want to celebrate with being human. That's the name of the program. The awe of being alive and the thrill of discovering what it means to be us, the greatest wonder in the world. Okay? So, Francis Schaeffer has something that he calls the mannishness of man. So the inside-out tactic is based on an insight from the late Francis Schaeffer that should help us navigate more confidently in conversations with others about Christ. For anybody that, that read the chapter, what, what is this mannishness of man about? And if you didn't read the chapter, just jump out there and, and take a stab at it. We won't hold it against you. The, the concept is tied to the question we were just kicking around. What does it mean to be human? So Schaefer, in Schaefer's word, he says, in words, he says, man is different from non-man. If you were going to just put it, state it as simply as possible, man is different from non-man. That's the mannishness of man. So even, and we'll, we'll pry that open a little bit more, but even Bill Gates agrees, as we just watched, that humans are unique, we're special, we're unlike anything else in the created, you know, realm. Or, or as David put it in Psalm 8, 5, crowned with glory and honor. We're absolutely unique. We're absolutely special. Um, this, this idea is, is what Schaefer's pointing to when he refers to the mannishness of man. You know, what we were reading in, um, in, in uh, Genesis and, and Psalms. Or in Psalm uh, 8 5, I believe. Was it 8 5? Yeah. Um, Anyways, that's what he's putting his finger on. So if we take that concept that he's, he's boiled down into this phrase, the mannishness of man, um, that's where we get this tactic. Because we live in God's world and we're all made in God's image, the Imago Dei. So there are things that all of us know. This is how we kind of opened up. That, that it's embedded deep in our hearts. And even though some of us may, may deny that or suppress that truth, as the scripture will tell us, um, or, or even if, it, you know, even if our worldview disqualifies it, there, there, was a, there was a quote from Kukul in there that I wanted to grab, and when I finally thought of it, I couldn't find it in the book. But if anybody knows or knows where it's at, pull it to the surface. But it was something, he said something along the lines of... of um, um, illustrating worldviews as like puzzle pieces. And they either fit together snugly or they disqualify each other. You know, they, they, they don't fit into the puzzle or they, or they fit in and they fit perfectly. And I, I forget how he said it, but it was, it was really good. So the point there is, is that you, you know these things to be true even if you try to claim otherwise. You're lying to yourself. And, and if, if, we're, if we're sensitive to this, we can pick up on it. That's what this tactic is, is about. Um, that which is already on the inside, put there by God himself, eventually shows itself on the outside in actions, language, and in convictions. Um, 
it, it just happens. So when we get better at identifying it, then, you know, then we can start to kind of apply this concept of the mannishness of man in these conversations that we're in. So somebody grab, um, uh, I want to read that one part again because I, I feel like I may have slid too much in there and muddied it up. Uh, because we live in God's world and we are all made in God's image, there are, all, there are things all people know that are embedded deep within their hearts even though they may deny them or their worldviews disqualify them. Um, so applying the mannishness of man. Somebody read for us Romans 1.19. Alright, that's, that's what this tactic is all about. Romans 1.19, if I had to give it one central verse, that's it. And, and all of us are familiar with that text, I would assume. Uh, for, what, for what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Not because he sent them a text message or, or wrote something in the sky, because he put it in their hearts. They're made in his image. So possessing this knowledge should make a big difference in our spiritual conversations. That, you know, Romans 1.19, I think, is, is, is really... Yeah, the Columbo tactic is, is good, but when you're, when you're trying to get to the heart of it, Romans 1.19 is all you need to remember. Um, the profound truths that we all know on the inside, they... Did your hand go up? It did. Man... You have the same personality as me. You really thought that was going to work? Just, just jump in there, man. What? Go ahead, David. Uh, I love you. <laughs> Feeling is mutual. That <laughs> uh, within us. Yep. Uh, I was going to show this uh, later, but I think it fits it right now. Uh, Born believers. So this was done by a psychologist. Um, Probably took it from Romans 1. Right. Okay. And because atheists uh, will use at times, well, actually, I think people started out as atheists and then we built these constructs and built religion and, and stuff. But when we first started out, we were atheists. So he interviewed kids from different parts of the world. So uh, Mormons, uh, Hindus, uh, atheist mom, <laughs> the kid finally, because she's answering, he's answered correctly, kind of thing. But, uh, well, yeah, of course he's a guy. Oh, he'd be powerful. He'd be more than Superman. He'd be a six-year-old who's lived all his yeah. with an atheist mother. So he says to mom, you answer the questions. She gets about halfway through. And then he says, mom, why are you getting all the answers wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, and, talking to three-year-olds without setting them up so they come up with that right answer. Just very basic questions. Uh, it, it became very evident, no matter where you're born in the world or what your system you're uh, being educated in, so to speak, yeah. is with. When asked the questions, basic questions, and uh, here comes God, here comes somebody powerful, here's somebody who created everything. It's like it's obvious and um, without even... So when we, when we say it's embedded in our hearts, we mean even the six-year-old's heart. Yeah, three-year-old. Born with it. Three-year-old, yeah. Uh, uh, 
Amen. Ecclesiastes 3.11. Yeah, that's why it works so well. Um, oh, by the way, I found this in the library. Yeah, and um, you know, you're you're touching on something that I've used many times, and it's uh, it's typically quite successful, uh, or at least it it creates room for more conversation. And when somebody's rejecting the God of the Bible or the God of Christianity, you know, we, we in earlier classes we talked about creating common ground and, and conceding or you know whatever, but strengthening the relationship before you press in further or go too hard. And um, sometimes I'll just go with that. Like, okay, all right, so let's throw the God of the Bible or the God of Christianity out. So tell me about your God. If you were going to craft a God, what would he be like? Or what would it be like? You know, because I'm like, well, he wouldn't be a he. Go ahead, Debbie. Well, um, I don't really want this recorded, but I, when we're going through our crisis with Evan's mom, and I mean a crisis, a crisis of, you know, losing her, but being in the hospital, being in a hospice um, care facility, these women seem to know there's a higher being. But when you try to direct it anywhere, it's like, okay, you know what? I'm just like, well, I guess I'm not going to continue down that road. I don't have time for that right now. But mm-hmm. um, they know there's a higher being. They, they've seen these people resuscitated, and what they're saying is, you know, they were somewhere in between, and they could see them working, you know, at these people that, um, you know, don't know. Well, they don't know who their God is. Yeah. And it isn't the God of the Bible. Yeah. Uh, but you know, very thankful to say we know. But you know, trying to 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 say the right thing in the moment, um, I, I found found very difficult at times. Um. I don't know if you've heard of a guy by the name of J.P. Moreland, but he's excellent. Um, uh, anyhow, he has a book called uh, Beyond Death. I couldn't think of the title. I just looked it up. Um, it, it, is a, it is a wonderful book on uh, near-death experiences. Um, and if you don't have time for all of that, you can, uh, you can catch videos of him lecturing on it. And uh, he's, he's probably the one of the most um, uh, intellectually engaging uh, apologists that I, I'm uh, aware of. Um, uh, anyhow, uh, I had the privilege of, of uh, meeting him personally. Anyways, J.P. Moreland, um, uh, Moreland, his work on uh, near-death experiences is, is uh, a, a body of work to be familiar with. Um, anyways, uh, thank you, Debbie. But what happens when you do have the opportunity to have those conversations and you say, okay, well, fine, you craft your own God. They just lay out the God of the Bible. You know, well, he'd be, it'd be loving. It'd be all loving. It'd be all powerful. It'd be all knowing. Da, 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 da. And then you can just one by one take the things that they've suggested and show them in Scripture how they're describing the God of the Bible. Doesn't mean they're going to, you know, you know, drop down to their knees and accept Christ right then and there. But, but remember, apologetics isn't always uh, about that. So, 
back to this point here, possessing this knowledge should make a big difference in all our spiritual conversations, be they apologetic or evangelistic in nature. The, the profound truths that we all know on the inside of us always eventually reveal themselves on the outside. Um, uh, this applies to believers and non-believers, as, as Debbie was just describing. All we have to do is listen for them. They're giving them to us on a silver platter. Listen. Go ahead, James. What were you going to say? Even you were talking about several weeks ago about, you know, about justice and stuff. And even some of those things that people complained about, about how, could, how could God do this, when you boil it down, they would still want to judge God. Yeah. Right. They might you know, say, well, why won't he forgive everyone? But if they, if they believe the other thing, they'll completely stop completely on them. They, they have to say just, and you can bring up examples like uh, oh, Ty, Ty, or the, the, the gentleman who was killed recently. Yep. And like, you, know, you wouldn't want someone who just pass over that. Right. You want a just God. Yep. Where you give people a just dude. That's right. And not just swiping them in the rug. Demand justice. Right. Society demands justice. Yes. And people know that deep in, even if they say, oh, well, you know, he just did that, you can forgive him. That's exactly right. That's, that is the point of this tactic, is everybody knows it. You can say whatever you want, but you live out something different. You know, I, was, um, I wasn't thinking of this chapter at the time I saw this on the side of the bus, but, but it was this week, and when I started in on this chapter, I thought of the side of that bus. But I was sitting at a stoplight, and this bus pulls up, and plastered across the side of it is, injustice, um, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I just thought to myself, amen. But... Not for the reasons you mean it, right? Um, and I just took note and, and, and kept going. So let's practice this a little bit. Richard Dawkins uh, uh, gets touched on in the book. He's one of atheism's most colorful apologists, and, and Dawkins believes morality is just kind of this relativistic trick of evolution. And, and it's, it's basically there just to, just to assist in getting our selfish genes into the next generation. So let's listen to how, listen, let's listen to how he describes the universe. He says, it is a place with no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So, is that statement consistent with his naturalism? Yeah, it's consistent with his naturalism. All right, but now let's let's listen to how he rails against God in the Old Testament, or the God of the Old Testament. Not that he's a different God, but he describes him describes him as a vindictive, bloodthirsty, homophobic, racist, genocidal. Uh, this is one of those big ones. Uh, uh, sadomasochistic. Say it again. Well, look at that. You've practiced that, buddy. Uh, malevolent bully. All right, now is that statement consistent with his naturalism? No. no, why? Why is it not consistent with the naturalism? What's he appealing to? Right, he's appealing to moralism, right? Yeah, he's basically saying God's immoral. You know, I, I really liked uh, Greg's, uh, uh, the way he traded with, um, uh, uh, with Earth Day. You know, he said, has it ever occurred to you, which I have thought about this, and I'm always encouraged when people much smarter than myself, you know, will spout off the same ideas. I'm like, oh, yeah, good point, Greg. I thought of that one. Glad you did, too. Makes me feel better. Uh, makes me feel smarter. <clears throat> but he, he said, hey, have you noticed how um, we, we say that there's just all this random chance and, you know, here we are, but, uh, but we got this moral obligation to take care of the world. It's all this big cosmic accident. But you've got a moral obligation to take care of it. What? How? 
I'm just a speck on a speck, orbiting a speck amongst a bunch of other specks. How can I have any moral obligation? We went to OMSI here a couple of weeks ago and uh, did one of these planetarium things where they show you this video on the, on the ceiling and you know, I think I'm getting too old for those. Um, my, my neck hurt. Um, but anyways, at the end, you know, and, and you can just hear how they're just constantly trying to chip away at you. You know, they must have, I asked Guy afterwards, I said, hey buddy, how many times did they say a billion? He goes, about a billion. <laughs> you know, like in this short little video, it's probably 15 minutes long, I don't know, 20 minutes long maybe. They, they literally said billion about a billion times. You know, they're just, they're just getting that language in. They're programming. They're programming. But, but the whole video is about how the earth just came about. Just did. The whole solar system, everything, this whole complex system that they're still figuring out how it works, well, that's just a big cosmic accident. And then they end the video with, and now the planet needs us to take care of it. <laughs> I could have let it all go if you just would have left that part out. But like, and what they did was they flipped. They appealed to, the, to a, a moral standard. Well, no, 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 man. It's just this big cosmic accident, and I've got no obligation to do anything. And the planet did all of this by itself? It dang sure don't need me. <laughs> yeah, it, and this stuff is everywhere. We just have to listen for it. So that statement is not consistent with his naturalism. He's making a moral appeal. So there is something true for Dawkins on the inside, something he knows that can't help but manifest itself on the outside when he's unguarded, right? So our mannishness will ultimately always betray us. No matter what we say our, our view is, no matter what worldview we subscribe to, so when Dawkins is defending his, his philosophical turf, he tells the lie. But when his guard is down and he's just being a human, he tells the truth. Right? He, he feels that on the inside. He's mad at God for being immoral in his opinion. But his worldview doesn't allow him the privilege of appealing to morality. Okay? So using the inside-out tactic requires looking for reflexive, reflexive statements made by non-believers that, that are inconsistent with the worldview they say they embrace, but, but they perfectly dovetail with a biblical worldview. So what are some of the ways you've seen the mannishness of man unwittingly expressed by, by non-Christians when their guard is down? Like I, I just saw it not long ago at the planetarium. Can you think of any time, doesn't have to be recent, just any time you've, now that you're plugging into this kind of thing, Go ahead, Julie. Well, her daughter who adopted a embryo okay. and, and now has a beautiful baby boy believes in abortion. So <laughs> if the value of purchasing and adopting an embryo is important, then why did that person save an embryo? It's just Yeah, why not just get rid of it? Just yeah. abort it. Why, why do you save it? Why are they, why are they preserving it? Yeah, and who was that? It was your our daughter. Your, your daughter, uh, Julie said her 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 daughter for the recording. Julie said her um, as an example, her her daughter recently um, adopted an embryo, and then I'm I'm guessing went through the process. You know, gave birth, has a baby boy, uh, but still supports abortion. And those seem to be you know inconsistent, right? At least logically so, Allie. Yes. What about the female babies? Right. Who, you 
Yeah, I. Uh, uh, it was actually your girlfriend, uh, uh, Jamie. Jamie, I, I use that line from that T-shirt all the time to this day. Uh, one of Allie's friends was wearing a T-shirt one day that it said, um, "I support women's rights" on the front, I think, and then on the back it said, "So much so that I believe they begin in the womb." And I was like, boom, drop the mic. You know, like, what do you mean you support women's rights, but you, you support abortion? That's a, that's a contradiction. You, you know, that's inconsistent. Anybody else have an example? Those are great. All right, the one he gave us in the book was in the late days of, uh, uh, of summer 1997, two well-known and, well and well-loved women died within days of each other. But the public reaction to each death was very different. So who were they? One was Mother Teresa. She passed away peacefully at 87 years old. Her death was a quiet conclusion to a noble life well lived. But Princess Diana, she died in her prime at 36 and, and her death was, was termed tragic and untimely. Um, an intrusion into a life filled with purpose. So why, did, why was there such different reactions to the same kind of event? You know, uh, somebody died. You know, uh, a life ended. You know, humans die. So what? We're just a speck on a speck, orbiting a speck, amongst other specks, right? So why was there such a different reaction? Because their age is their potential. But if it was Darwinism, you know, it was a of fittest, she didn't survive. So why would we mourn that? That's just, nature taking its course. All right. To follow that further, Princess Diana was going around doing a lot of good. Mm-hmm. Right. There's no better. There's no ought. There's no good. It's just a speck on a speck. Orbiting a speck amongst other specks. They got to let all that go. But they don't. They just assume it because they know in their heart. And it's because they too are made in the image of God. So with no God, atheism is forced to say life has no ultimate meaning. Thus, no one can die before their time. Death is death and it arrives when it arrives. But with God, Christianity says life does have meaning. Thus, every life is valuable and filled with purpose and, and hope. People reacted differently because no matter what they say they believe on the outside, on the inside they know life has ultimate purpose and deep significance that transcends the individual private person or, or project. Um, in other words, their mannishness gives them away every time. You just have to listen for it. Uh, they might not let it out when they're in a guarded moment, but they're human, and, and in unguarded moments, they're exposed. So those are our two steps. Using the inside-out tactic is to get someone thinking. Step one is listen. Listen to the way people talk. Listen from when from their own mouths, their acknowledgement of ultimate reality. Talked about metaphysics, but... I didn't put that reminder in there, but that's something we've touched on. Intrudes on their personal philosophies. Listen for their words, when their words, sometimes without them even realizing it. Betray what they claim to be their true convictions about the world or, or the universe or reality. And then step two is exploit it in a loving way. But exploit it. Exploit the tension by asking a question. You know, uh, uh, one tension that I'm always fascinated to inquire about is gender neutrality and homosexuality. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable enough in 2023. I don't, you know, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I'm not uncomfortable in my skin about that. And you are free to hold whatever crazy view you want. But as humans, I, it is fun to talk about it, right? Um, so riddle me this. If homosexuality is a thing, and those are rights that need to be guarded and defended and fought for, etc., 
Does that not logically mean by default we need to let go of gender neutrality? But if gender neutrality is a thing that needs to be fought for and advocated for and so on and so forth, doesn't that mean we need to let go of gay rights? That's right. So I'm not telling you that you can't have either option. You're free to hold one of those. But you cannot logically hold them together at the same time. And they just look at you and the response is, bigot? But what about what I said though? Wait a second. You know, that, that's ad hominem, right? Maybe so, but still. Yeah, maybe so, but not on these grounds. Ad hominem. That's all they can do is call you a name because they can't argue that. You know, it's logically inconsistent. So exploit the tension by asking a question. So why, this is a facetious question, but, but given this kind of a atheistic worldview, why even try to talk someone out of suicide? Mm -hmm. If there's no meaning to life, go for it. Done. Life's hard. I don't, you know, if I just jump off the bridge right now, I, pff, next month's bills are somebody else's problem. Something Julie was saying, her mentioned of this whole survival of the fist. Right. That's right. Survival of the fittest squashes so much. And this is another glaring example of why this inside out you know, idea, this mannishness of man is so true because we just assume such things. We don't look at animals and call them immoral. You know, or bigots. Or bigots. Yeah, when 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 the when the lion kills the thing and eats it, yeah, well, you know, gotta gotta eat. You know, we don't we don't call the lion a murderer. He's just eating. It was, it was on the menu. Yeah, what? But if a human does that, all of a sudden we're assigning morality to things, right? So, um, it, it, it we we just assume that that humans are different. But, but we, don't, we don't apply, and then, the, and then science, to your point, uh, um, James, science will group us into some kind of animal category, but then we don't get the same pass that other animals do, right? We, we, so scientifically, you classify us the same way, but then we're held to some kind of moral account. There's no room for that in your worldview. That's, that is the currency that this tactic trades on. And again, it's not exactly a tactic so much as it is a, an awareness or a, a state of mind. It's a, it's a truth. But, but in a world without purpose, why is Princess Di's death a tragedy? If there's no ultimate universal morality, how can anything really be evil? It's not. So Richard Dawkins also needs to answer this question. So here's where it gets real. Justice or mercy? We were talking about justice earlier. Remember, everyone knows something has gone terribly wrong with the world. Every religion agrees that the world is broken. In fact, just about every person out there agrees something's wrong with the world. Christians call it sin, and sin is evil, right? But non-believers just call it evil. 
They don't explain what good is and, and how they have nothing to call good to benchmark whatever it is they're calling evil against. They just make these assumptions and we let them get away with it. Um, so, So does he exist? <laughs> right, so we got to back the conversation up. So it's like, oh, so, okay, fine. My God's unjust, and now you're blaming the evil in the world on my unjust God, so now we're saying he exists. Because when we started this conversation, you said he didn't exist. So I need some clarity, right? And this is the kind of thing to where people step in it all the time. The hardest part isn't identifying it. It's poking into it in love. <laughs> Because it's, it, 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 it's almost comical, and it's sad, and people are hurting, and there's an answer to this stuff. So though humans have inherent dignity, we're also cruel. You know, that's why I want to, when, when somebody's talking about my God or my Jesus that way, I want to stick the knife in and turn it. Because I've, I've got flesh, and it's fallen. And I've got emotions and feelings that aren't of God, right? And, but because I love God, I, I, need to, I need to check those. But I have to acknowledge that I'm a human. I'm, I'm cruel. So out of self-preservation, we always look out and we say evil's out there somewhere and it's a problem. But that's really just self-preservation. If we're being honest, the evil's inside. It's inside of all of us. We're the ones out there committing the evil acts. We're not, you know, Greg said, we're not machines that are malfunctioning. We are not bodies that are ailing. We are subjects who revolted, rebels who are now morally corrupted. Again, this is a fundamental truth that deep down inside of us, we all know to be true. We are, we are the agents of the evil that is out there. We are the ones. Right? We're the ones doing the evil deeds that we object to. We do it and we know it's wrong. So why do humans feel guilt? Back to this, if, if we're looking through a naturalistic you know, uh, 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 lens or, or worldview. Because we are guilty. That's why we feel guilt. We can come up with all kinds of answers. It, you know, it's a social construct or whatever. Okay, maybe. Or maybe we feel guilty because we are guilty. Adam and Eve broke fellowship with God when they sinned. Consequently, deep inside of us is a gnawing awareness of our badness, producing feelings we universally recognize. It's guilt. We owe and we know it. We are in debt, not, not to a standard. This is the, I think this is the most important phrase of the whole chapter. We are in debt, not to a standard, not to a rule. Not to a law, but to a person. To the one we've offended. With our sin. And this is bad news, guys. Because that guilt, that sin, it comes with some pretty serious consequences. If there's a God, then he created us. And if he created us, then he wants something from us. And if we don't give it to him, well. And that's what every atheist is running from. It's that accountability. It's if that is true. Oh man, I'm in trouble. You better believe it. <laughs> This is why everybody longs for justice. Revelation 20, 11 through 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. This is the bottomless freefall of mankind that, that Sagan was talking about. Lost in a great darkness, in a world without God, Carl Sagan's right. We're guilty, and to James's point, a good judge owes us no pardon. Still, atonement has to be made, the debt has to be paid, justice must be perfect. All of that is bad news. So, the answer to guilt is not to deny it. That's relativism. The answer to guilt is forgiveness. Forgiveness, mercy, repair, restoration, rebirth, new life, hope. This is what our souls are longing for on the inside. This is what everybody wants. Sagan's right when he says we are lost, but he's wrong when he says there's no one to send out a search party. Matthew 11, 28 through 29. Come to me. Sorry, guys. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Our, whole, our hearts have a hole in them the size and shape of a cross. Everybody. And apart from Christ, nothing can fill it. And we all try. We all try to fill it with all kinds of stuff. But apart from Christ, nothing can fill that void. So the restlessness of the human soul, our sense of longing, our yearning to be filled, or, or maybe our yearning to be fixed, is a universal human affliction. You could hang your hat on that. Because we are all made in the image of God. That, that, that feeling is a, is a malady, though, that, it, that it has nothing to do with our natural appetites. Satisfying our passions never satisfies the deep hunger of our hearts. You know, from time to time, the things of this world, they can distract us. But, but when we're alone, our conscience speaks the truth. We know. We know. So, so in summary, step one, listen to the way people talk. Step two, exploit those tensions by asking a question, or two, or three, in love. It gives you the opportunity to be the skeptic. If that's how the world works, help me understand this. And, and how quickly you'll see they don't have an exit door for whatever craziness they've just asserted. There are times when good arguments evade you. That's when perhaps just a simple appeal to the truth might be all you need to do. Right? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Alright, amen. Dave's going to come up and create trouble. <laughs> create trouble. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not going there. Oh, okay. Rather than take the time to set that up, since we're all Sorry about close and everybody brushed their teeth this morning, so it's all good. <laughs> well, I finally remembered anyway. Um, Last week on, um, just give me the facts, ma'am, he said, you've got to know uh, the facts. One thing I find with uh, a lot of Christians I've talked to, uh, they might know a few verses, but they don't know a lot of facts. 
Um, so when you find something, like in the book, was it page 207, um, that tells you that their scientific view uh, is to keep God out of, <laughs> uh, out of the door. Uh, remember probably when you first became a Christian, you were memorizing the Bible and stuff, you put things on a 3 by 5 card? Uh, many of us uh, did back in the day. Um, I still do the same thing, so I made a copy of that quote uh, from bottom of page 207, put it on a 2 by 5 um, now, if you never talk to anybody that's dealing with science or, um, uh, oh, good, thank you, um, then don't worry about it. Uh, but um, also, uh, I handed out a, a thing that uh, the con in the classroom, and there was a, a quote in there that I've got on the back here that. Um, don't tell the creationists, but us, but scientists, don't know where life came from. Now that's an atheist, secular humanist, evolutionist talking. One thing, it didn't stand out to me at first, it was two more weeks in this class after reading that, that it stood out, scientists don't know. Well. Christian scientists know where it came from. It was picking up, it's picking up those words that are used and paying more and more attention all the time. Um, so just having something like that, so if you don't know where life came from, what amoeba? In what swamp? You've got nothing to evolve. You're done. What else have you got? I mean, it, it's just having quotes like that and uh, their scientific uh, view of um, doesn't allow anything that conflicts with uh, their view of naturalism. Nothing. So, so if you're into that, by the way, um, uh, this, uh, these pocket guides are great. 96 pages. So if you want to see science versus the Bible, uh, what is and isn't science? Is science secular? Evolution, the anti-science? Successful predictions by, by creation scientists? Should there be a conflict between science and the Bible? So in quick 96 pages, because it's a small book, you can find all kinds of uh, answers. Logic and uh, faith picks up the same uh, thing. Faith versus reason, critical thinking, irrational worldview, uh, the straw man that we saw a few weeks ago. Uh, is atheism uh, a religion? Confessions of an atheist. So uh, these actually came from Answers in Genesis. I love uh, those guys. It came in a little box, 20 of them, for $20. One dollar each. Mm. Dealing with everything from uh, morality, um, uh, climate change, um, genderism, uh, all the things that uh, they deal with because of dealing with the, with the Bible. So uh, there's all kinds of uh, things to, uh, to choose from. Um, then uh, I, I love these uh, tracks from uh, Hendricks and Rose, actually owned now by um, uh, 
lost it. Um, anyway, so um, uh, why trust the Bible? I mentioned a couple, three weeks ago, conversation with our son who's having trouble with the faith. <coughs> um, just as no, soon as I mentioned this person's name, he knew then that I knew what I was talking about. He was hoping I didn't, but, and sometimes that works. Uh, some recent book-selling books such as Bart Herman's Misquoting Jesus. He's written 27 books against the faith. He was going to one of our seminaries and got to the point in our New Testament introduction, a textual criticism, when they said, uh, we don't have the originals and now he's written 27 books. He argues that scribes did get it wrong. Here's a summary of recent claims about the surviving manuscripts of the Bible. Quote, not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We only have error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them in thousands of ways. He's going to tell you 400,000. Mistakes multiply and get repeated. Sometimes they get corrected and sometimes they get compounded. And so it goes. For centuries, in some places, we simply cannot be sure what we have reconstructed the text accurately. It's a bit hard to know what the words of the Bible mean if we don't even know what the words are. How do you answer that? Well, there's uh, 10 of them in here. And it's almost bad Ehrman's questions that he's raised uh, against the, the Bible. So why, why trust the Bible? Just on our Thursday night group, we uh, went through this. So you get them on sale. Um, the price has gone up recently. I uh, got these for a dollar fifty. Can you reproduce that for a dollar fifty? You'd have a hard time even making copies on a copy machine for a dollar fifty uh, in color. So. Um, so how, how, how then, how did we get the Bible? We followed it up in our group with how, how did the Bible get? What about all those copy, those scribal errors and, and things? How, how did we get the Bible? And obviously that raises the question, tough uh, questions about Christianity. And so uh, this has uh, 10 tough questions, some of them from Bad Herm. And, um, so if you know his name and know a little bit about what he has said, uh, you will surprise uh, a number of people. So it, it's outlined very easy, easy to follow. Uh, we've been using these in our group on. What about uh, cults and re religions? Um, they've got one for that for you too. Uh, what others teach, what the Bible says. If you want to check that further, you can get the, a DVD or you can get just the uh, PDF. Um, they have one, uh, Who I Am in Christ, and uh, when I'm up uh, teaching for the uh, Golden Airs on a Wednesday morning, we're using the PDF and gets it up on the screen, makes it real nice for everybody to see and um, of who we are in Christ. So you can do the same thing with uh, with this. You want to know what maybe a little more about what the Mormons teach and, and stuff? Great stuff. 
and, and then you've got things like uh, the Y series, uh, Y Jesus. So I kind of uh, this came out answering the um, the uh, Da Vinci conspiracy uh, thing. Uh, that gets answered also in uh, Why Trust the, the Bible. He made little mention on that too. So it um, there's a, it's knowing the fact. It's not just knowing some verses in the Bible. It's know what you're talking about. What, when somebody brings up uh, questions of, okay, we, we love the Bible, uh, can you defend it? Do you, do you know anything way to defend it? There's all kinds of real easy, cheap answers to do it. And these are intentionally put at this side, size so it fits right inside your Bible inside cover. So uh, you're, you know you're going to be talking to somebody, you've had a conversation with you know I'm not sure about that. Let, can I get back to you? Because that that's, that's intrigued me that. Um, you've done two things, you told them you're open to finding out things and you don't have all the answers and, but you, you want to learn yourself and you're telling them you care about them that you're willing to now to put in some work to come back and able to answer them. That, that speaks volumes to people. So, uh, easy way to do it. Buy them a copy. <laughs> yeah, I've actually done that unintentionally to where somebody threw something out and I knew the answer and I knew what I wanted to say. But to get more mileage and, and to get more investment into the relationship, I just acknowledged that it was a good question and asked if I could take a little time to think about that and do some homework and would they be willing to talk some more later mm -hmm. even though I, I had it on hand and it just felt right to stretch that mm -hmm. out a little further and, yeah you know again just be obedient to the spirit yeah because if you're just going to quote the Bible to them, which I think is important, depending on who you're talking to, uh, and they say, well, it's full of errors. Are you a done deal now? End of quotes. <laughs> you know, so, uh, uh, what do you mean by that? <laughs> this has been a good class. I love it. So, uh, well, you know, everybody's... I'm sorry. Go ahead. What would be really helpful is if you could put those titles and, and the um, publisher out on an email to us all. If you put it together and send it to me, I'll blast it out to everybody. Okay. Sure. And when you said cheap, he meant, he meant uh, qualitatively cheap, as in price. Right. But not quantitatively. Uh, good answers, not cheap uh, answers. Just doesn't cost you much to get the answers. Yeah. And uh, there was, uh, I'm, I'd appreciate your prayers. Uh, next quarter, which we're not getting the break, so it's coming a week earlier than I expected. I'm going to be teaching the, uh, the book of Genesis, I think, at this hour in this room, I think. Just taking. Um, and so, uh, in doing all this research, uh, one on Genesis 11 that I found, um, quoting uh, from a uh, an atheist, um, evolutionist. You know, um, you, you take a, a chimpanzee and put him in a different uh, place with chimpanzees, they communicate with each other because they've got one language. And you do that and it's, uh, with goldfish and you do that with cows and you do that. They, they all speak th their own language. 
And he said, what's confusing to me is how come we've got 7,000 different ones when we're at the top of the group? How come that those simple ones can, uh, can all, all talk to each other and us, the more advanced, the more intellectual, we've got 7,000. How, how did that happen? And I said, thank you, Genesis 11, let me put that as a note. Uh, uh, so, um, yeah, uh, uh, we've got it back to, I think it's uh, 96 languages now where they've traced back to. And, um, and then in this that I was uh, reading, they were quoting for this, uh, if they keep looking, we'll probably get it back to the 70 families in Genesis 10. Yeah, cool stuff. So, um, but anyway, so a lot of research because there's a lot of stuff going on just in 1 through 11. And then obviously you want to talk about Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. And uh, so it's... Uh, the joys of fitness into an hour. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's great. So I've, I'm coming up with handouts so I can just... <laughs> Uh, read this at your leisure. I'm just going to give you the. <laughs> Got to be careful here. Uh, my view. Okay, I was going to say the right view, but you know, uh, so, um, I mean, there are as many different views of creation as there are days in Genesis one. So uh, that's why the the handout is going to be from uh, the syllabus. Um, I got from uh, Dr. Roscoe in our Genesis class at Talbot Seminary. He did a great job. Pros and cons for each view. Why, why, why reinvent the wheel? Here you go. <laughs> so uh, there's no copyright on it. And I said thank you very much. <laughs> so I'd hand that and then just deal with um, what the obvious uh, right view is in Genesis uh, 1. So. Well, obvious to some of it. I steal a lot of Greg's language directly, but I don't feel bad given the case of books that we bought. I think it's fine. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So actually, uh, the book we're looking at buying, uh, we're going to wait uh, till first day of class um, to find out how many people, and especially checking it for um, the certificate. Um, with probably with the uh, church selling it at a reduced price, probably talking $15 at the most. Uh, that's, a, that's another thing. I haven't touched on that in a while. Shame on me, and I haven't sent out an email in a while either, but, but ha some have been sent out. So if anybody's interested in getting credit for the class, uh, the, the writing exercise is just summarizing all the tactics that we've touched on, just do it in a, you know, in a paragraph, or if you can do it in a couple of few sentences, I guess that's technically a paragraph. It doesn't have to be elaborate is my point. Just showcase your your, your, your comprehension of it and, and state it in your own words. And then, um, and then tell us about, um, you know, uh, somebody that you've been sharing the truth with or, or some times that you've used these tactics. Just, mm -hmm. just document that. And um, uh, that along with attendance, that's really all that's uh, required to grab credit for, for this, this class. But uh, we've got a couple more weeks. So this week I'll, I'll touch on all of that again in written form and, and send it out to you guys. Uh, one last thing, because uh, uh, we're being asked, that diagram that's on the board at the back, to set these tables up ready for uh, the um, indoctrination of why Brushbury Church is the best then, church to go to. Uh, I think there's eight of these gray tables, so let's use those, and then we'll, uh, 
We'll fold up. Oh, we didn't pray. Dale, you want to pray us out? Did we pray before we started? What? No wonder it went so well. You make a joke when you come in and then let me start the class without praying. Yeah, huh? One long prayer. One long prayer. Twice as long. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say, Julie. Twice as long. I'm sorry, guys. Father, thank you for this time that we can together learn better how to how to introduce you to people who don't have never shaken your hand. Um, thank you for the teaching that we've had, and Lord help us to incorporate it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, any help would be appreciated to get in the chair, set up in time for them coming.